From pesos to pounds, euros to yen, WISE can help you manage your money in different currencies. With WISE, you can send money to your cousin in Australia with ease, travel internationally without having to brave an airport currency exchange desk, and take away the guesswork that goes along with converting currencies. WISE lets you send and spend money worldwide at the real-time mid-market exchange rate, all without any hidden fees. Join 16 million customers already using WISE worldwide. To learn more about how a WISE account could work for you, download the app or visit WISE.com. That's WISE, W-I-S-E dot com. WISE dot com. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. My personal household budget constraint is like not that affected by coronavirus. Like I work from home, uh, but it's people who suddenly lose their incomes. <laughs> and that was the end of the weeds. <laughs> Hello, welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias, here with Jane Coaston, ProPublica's Dara Lind. Coronavirus continues to afflict us as a nation. It does. Um, and I think, you know, what was most striking to me is that after quite some time of the president being way, way outside the boundaries of what experts were saying about coronavirus uh, at, at Monday afternoon's press conference. I don't want to, like, over-exaggerate my praise for this by lowering the bar too far. Well, especially because, who knows, in the time between when we're taping this and when it goes live, the president yeah. could have said something totally different. What yesterday's press conference represented was one just a tone of seriousness that appeared to show that perhaps if not Trump, someone around Trump made it clear that this the biggest deal now is not making sure the stock market is OK, because the stock market, I feel like I am based on the last two weeks. I'm under the belief that the stock market is witchcraft that can apparently be controlled either by positivity or negativity. Um, I, I don't think it might be witchcraft, but I don't know what it is. But the I, you know, the focus over the last few weeks for Trump has been, you know, everything is fine. This is all going to blow over. This is a great time to buy uh, in the markets. And that's I mean, you're still hearing that from Larry Kudlow. You're still hearing that from, you know, uh, members of com Congress like Devin Nunez, who was like, go to a bar when you should not go to bars. Do so not that was <laughs> I, I think the single most important thing the president said at Monday's press conference is that the stock market will recover, in his opinion, when the public health problem is solved. Right? Which is a Which, very good way to pivot attention not least among businesses themselves, to right. get the public health problem solved, and then we can talk about your long-term economic prospects. And also, you know, this is a, a thing that, you know, Trump had been criticized for, but it's like there's a there's a pandemic playbook that the CDC, you know, puts out, right, to like what to do. And like the stuff at the beginning is like you need to have clear, honest, and transparent communication. And that is simply in a inextricable tension from trying to talk up the short-term stock market, right? And now, you never know with Trump, right? Is this one good press conference or a permanent change in tone? But that was the right thing to say, right? That Like, nobody is happy to see the stock market crashing, but that the only way to address that is to address the underlying public health issue. And then we published not with the force of law, but CDC guidance saying people should avoid gatherings of more than 10 people. People should avoid bars and restaurants, movie theaters, all that kind of stuff. Some cities have sort of taken those measures officially. Others haven't. But it is a the fact that the central government is now saying that's what we should do means that for the for the first time since February, I finally feel like we are catching up to the epidemiological curve. 
The story of this past weekend, as far as I'm concerned, is that on Saturday, the governor of Oklahoma was posting a picture of himself and his family in a packed local restaurant saying support local business. And then by Sunday had declared a state of emergency in the state and was, you know, endorsing social distancing and all of that. So it does feel like even without Donald Trump himself as an individual coming out and giving cover on Monday, there might have been something of a sea change. But the thing about Trump is not only is he such a dominant figure in terms of news coverage, in terms of who his followers will listen to. But he also appears to have created some cover for Fox News, which had previously been, in many respects, downplaying the threat of the coronavirus to like switch tone a little bit, which might bode well for, you know, it seemed that prior to 72 hours ago or so, there really was a strong blue-red divide. And you could see this in polling, right? That like Democrats were taking the public health threat of coronavirus seriously or, you know, paranoically or whatever, probably just seriously, to an extent that Republicans were not. And I think, Jane, like you're probably the person to speak to this. Are we seeing a genuine narrowing of that gap? I think we are starting to see a shift in that gap. And it's interesting because a lot of um, the kind of biggest names um, on the right and I, you know, the right is a large and tumultuous group, which includes some conservatives and some just you know right wing figures. A lot of the statements they made that were, you know, the former sheriff David Clark statements on Twitter, which got deleted for being insane or kind of right wing firebrands like Katie Hopkins. A lot of those statements were made before Trump's big speech yesterday afternoon. So this is, you know, comments made on the 14th and on the 15th. So it'll be interesting to see how that shift takes place. We've already seen it uh, on Sean Hannity's show where he actually cited my colleague and Matt's colleague, Brian Resnick, as and with an article talking about how coronavirus is much more serious than the flu, which is a real shift in tone from Sean Hannity, who basically was on team. It's the flu, guys, alongside Rush Limbaugh and a host of other figures. The American Conservative, which is a conservative magazine, they had a piece on how conservatism and pandemics do not necessarily go together, especially because pandemic responses, inc- you know, necessitate one, like strong top down action and two, everyone doing the same thing for the benefit of other people in a very specific way. And in the piece itself, it goes into a long thing about the book, The Plague. But um, I think it's it's been a, an interesting political challenge because you've heard from, you know, libertarians saying like, actually, you're seeing kind of a, a bursting forth of libertarian concepts as, you know, smaller testing facilities are responding to the fact that, you know, the federal government hasn't been able to be there. And you're seeing kind of that kind of thing. But at the same time, I think one of the other challenges here is because, you know, we have a very big country. And sometimes I think that this becomes, you know, it's such an obvious thing until you contemplate the fact that like in Washington and in California, coronavirus is real and serious and shutting down barbershops and restaurants and schools. And for people who were on spring break in Florida, coronavirus was still almost hypothetical, as you could see from you saw the mayor of several large spring break destinations ordering states of emergency. And at the same time, there were massive packed together concerts on the beaches. It's almost less reflective of conservative ideology than just kind of a general sense that this what this is doesn't look the same in every place. I've been comparing it to kind of like if you were really getting ready for a like snowpocalypse or a snowstorm, but you couldn't see it come and you were going you were working from the basis that it might not hit you, but you could help it not hurt someone else. And I think that that's challenging not just politically, but socially. I mean, with all due respect to libertarians trying to salvage their their ideology, it it doesn't really work, right? Because, you know, what what all the experts keep saying about this is that the problem is, is to prevent a really bad situation arising in an epidemic, you have to take steps before it's evident that they are necessary, that if you wait, as, you know, Italy did, and as it appears New York City may have, if you wait until the hospital system is completely overloaded to start locking people down, you already have a tremendous amount of infection out there. You need to, quote unquote, overreact 
right? There's one case, two cases verified in the whole city, and you put everybody on a strict social distancing regime, and then you can be confident that you will identify a couple other cases, you will isolate people, you will be able to treat everybody in a calm, organized way, and, and you can actually handle it. And that's what's been tough for Western countries. I mean, I think it, it looks like, I don't want to play too much amateur sociologist, but it looks like because Asian countries dealt with SARS several years ago, when this started happening, people both in governments, in democratic countries and more authoritarian countries were like, okay, we're going to do the SARS playbook, right? And they went to it very quickly, whereas people in the West you know, not just Donald Trump, had this kind of like, oh, this this seems bad. And they keep doing things, but it keeps being a little too little and a little bit too late. And and that extends to the fact that we still don't, throughout the West, have the quantity of masks, have the quantity of uh, infrared temperature guns, things like that, that you see being used in Asia as containment strategies. And it's unfortunate because, like, I know there had, there's been, like, a lot of content on Vox.com like over the years saying that like America is not sufficiently prepared for something like this. And you you don't like to see a take like that vindicated. But like it's clear that even as there started to be more and more news about this, it was like nobody nobody quite had the like break glass in case of emergency. Now we're going to do it. All of that is true, but I do think that there's been something of a tendency among people who are really emphasizing the epidemiological benefits of social distancing to not talk about the costs. And those costs have really come into focus in the last mm -hmm. few days. Like, it's not just that political leaders were exhibiting cowardice or overly committed to liberal democratic individualistic values right. in their reluctance to do this. It's that there is a very real and immediate economic cost to telling people not to congregate in public spaces. And that's something that we've seen following very closely on the wave of kind of top-down closures and, and lockdowns over the last few days that we're already seeing, you know, indefinite closures and layoffs in the hospitality industry, that there's serious concern about about small businesses more generally and how they're going to cope. Obviously, the airlines are really struggling. Yep. This is causing a massive both, you know, stock market and like immediate retail economic crisis. How do we deal with that? Right. Let's let's take a break and, and talk about the economy. Support for the weeds comes from not another politics podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. Opinions are plastered all over social media. Pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context. And it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season. We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. And if you like this show, you might like Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot-button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but a few recent episodes that you can listen to include a deep dive into why women are underrepresented in U.S. politics or whether or not we can believe political surveys. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. Wise is the app that makes using different currencies easy. Need to send dollars to your cousin in Bali fast? Getting paid in another currency and don't want to lose out because of inflated exchange rates? Want travel money without having to slog through the currency exchange kiosk? Then WISE might just be your answer. From pesos to pounds, euros to yen, WISE takes the guesswork out of converting currencies. You can send and spend money worldwide at the real-time mid-market exchange rate with no markups and no hidden fees. In 2023, people sent over $100 billion worldwide with WISE. What's more, over half of those transfers got to their destination in less time than it takes to listen to this ad. Whether you're traveling, sending money abroad, or doing business, let WISE help you manage your money in different currencies with ease. Join 16 million customers already using WISE worldwide. To learn more about how a WISE account could work for you, download the app or visit WISE.com. That's WISE, W-I-S-E.com, WISE.com. WISE 
So I think that the economic impact, it's of particular interest because if you're an epidemiologist, I think right now you're like, I don't care. And it's an entirely understandable perspective. Like if you're Dr. Anthony Fauci, you want everyone to shut everything down because your focus is like, you know, restaurants at some point can reopen or shift in some way. People can come back to the economy. People cannot come back from the dead. Like, And I think that there is a real focus right now on, you know, the economy will figure itself out. This is more important. But I think for people, um, you know, for a lot of people, for employers, for teachers, for, you know, bartenders, for waitstaff, for the service industry as a whole. And, you know, let's keep in mind how many millions of people are involved in the service industry in some capacity or another. You know, gift cards and takeout are not going to keep people in their jobs. Well, and even if they do keep people in their jobs, right? I mean, these are sectors in which people are relying on tips, right? Uh, very heavily for their incomes. And it doesn't it doesn't quite work on that level. Because like, of course, you want to say, look, human life is more important than than the economy. Uh, but then there's a certain common sense aspect where that does break down, right? I mean, like, the this is just the flu theories are wrong, like epidemiologically, but it is right. true that the flu kills a lot of people. You know, thousands of Americans die every year because of the flu. We could avoid that by um, closing all restaurants and movie theaters all winter every year. Um, and we don't. Right. The the feeling is that the cost to the economy and to society of like not having schools run at the winter time uh, is is too high to pay, even though it really would save lives. So nobody likes to do this kind of calculus. Um, you know, the the math that I think we've seen and that, according to news reports, sort of changed Trump's mind was a calculation by people in the UK that 2.2 million Americans would die absent uh, very stringent measures. So, you know, OK, like that, that's a ton. But there's a there's a challenging, you know, exercise. The kind of thing nobody wants to do is like where between 17,000 flu deaths and 2.2 million uh, COVID-19 deaths, like where do you draw the line? Where do you say a shutdown is worth it? You know, it, it's hypothetical at this point, but it's not, as Darren was saying, it's not totally crazy that policymakers were worried about the economics of this. It's just that the the health toll is so enormous that it seems like we have no choice. And there is a certain extent to which it does seem that the stock market forced at least the federal government's hand, because we know, uh, thanks to this being if not intentionally, one of the more transparent White Houses in history, thanks to the amazing volume of contemporaneous leaking about what's going on, that the stock market is kind of an index for Trump, that it's very that it's, you know, his right. model for whether the economy is doing well enough to reelect him. And the stock market really did go from being, you know, as you were saying, Jane, like, oh, undersensitive to news to extremely sensitive to news. I'm feeling a lot of flashbacks to 2008 right now, where the immediacy of an economic crisis meant that the concentrated pain was just too high for government not to feel that it needed to step in. And then the question becomes not, is there government intervention in not just public health, but the economy? But like, what does that government intervention look like? And is it structured to you know, to address the things that legislators are most likely to be hearing complaints about? Or is it structured to prevent, you know, a short term economic panic? Or is it structured to prevent long term damage that could be caused by people not leaving their houses for weeks or months? You know, it's a series of problems like concatenating and piling up on each other, right? One is you have uh, people who are sick and are being told not to come to work, right? And part of that is we are telling people be extra strict, right? Not just you can't go get tested for COVID-19, but like if you got the sniffles, if you got a fever, like stay home. So people are going to lose income over that. We don't have sick leave. We'll talk about the bill on that. Uh, you also have people who just losing out on clients, right? Like you cut hair, salons haven't been closed in your city, but many fewer people are coming in. So your income goes down. You have people who are getting laid off from the hospitality sector. Um, so that's all bad. Then you also have like the top down collapse of the airline industry, cruise ships, certain kinds of major hotels, where it's not that 
the customers dried it up. I mean, I, I had a friend who was was on a plane to to Maine a couple of days ago and he said it was full. You know, it was like people in D.C. who have summer places up there were like, I'm getting out of I'm getting out of Dodge. Uh, but you can't fly anywhere internationally. So the connections are out. Uh, flight volumes have dropped by 50, 60, in some cases, 80 percent for, for different airlines. So they're idling people. And there you're not just talking about I mean, you should be talking about how do you help the workers? But there's also a question of like the corporate infrastructure is collapsing, right? If one American airline went bankrupt, you would either expect another airline to buy it out of bankruptcy, uh, which is what happened with American and US Air, or else you could do a Chapter 8 liquidation, in which case you literally sell off the planes to other airlines. Right now, like we don't know which airline is closest to bankruptcy. But like if, let's say, Delta goes belly up, like nobody wants it. I'm very skeptical of this airline bailout concept. But the problem of you don't want America's like literal physical passenger planes that cost tens of millions of dollars to build to just like sit around in a state of disrepair. Like we will want to fly airplanes again in the not too distant future. And we need to be doing something to make sure that like not just we need to make sure that the workers can survive, but also that like we have the infrastructure to keep doing it, that we don't let like a huge swath of the transportation network, you know, go to waste at the same time, just like shoveling money at executives who kept promising us that they would be profitable forever and paid out all kinds of dividends. Like that seems really, really crappy. Right. Yeah. And it seems that that's the main focus of the currently proposed $850 billion bailout. I'm not sure if this is in the current version, but a couple of days ago, it was like the cruise industry is very important. Hotels, casinos, casinos, which You know, anything that involves a casino bailout just starts making me think of the movie Casino, which is probably unhelpful. But that's my entire understanding of how the casino industry works. Um, But yeah, it seems to that this is a this is already progress from this administration on their perspective on this. And yet this progress is largely, I think, meaningless for a lot of people within industries that will not be. You know, when when you're basically re- hoping and praying that the new Facebook proposed hundred million dollar grant to small businesses is what's going to help you, I'm aware. You know, yes, I'm aware of the wonders of private industry taking taking stock and taking responsibility, but that's not helpful. This stuff is all getting rolled together and like takes are fleeing around. But yeah. you know, as I was saying before, it's like I'm really skeptical of the airline industry, but I also really see the case mm-hmm. for saving it. America's casino infrastructure <laughs> is not. No, vital in the same kind of way. Like no, it is not. In important. fact, like casinos go bust all the time. Right, Creative a, destruction is a reality. Of well, the and they're not. A lot of retailers are going to be put in real stress like this. But in a healthy economy, you would say, look, like it's fine. Like if Best Buy goes out of business, other businesses will be growing. But right now, even though not everything is shut down, like nothing is growing. Nobody is going to say, like, oh, now is a great time to, like, put up some new shops. Yeah. And you're seeing this from, you know, Volkswagen just announced they're shutting down production. Car companies are shutting down production. You know, this is not a something growing, something else shrinking. That's everything is shrinking or stopping in response to this for an indefinite amount of time. And I mean, with one one exception, Amazon. Uh, they are reportedly raising their pay by $2 an hour and hiring, looking to hire thousands more people to deal with delivery demand, which is why by the end of all of this, Jeff Bezos will be confirmed the most powerful person in existence. Although I do have to feel that that's just a couple of bad news stories of Amazon couriers not yeah. taking proper sanitary precautions away from being like a huge hit to Amazon yeah. and further straining the rest of that sector, which people don't really think about because UPS isn't as sexy a company. You know, the every sector is shrinking at once problem does go to to be a little bit, you know, elementary and first principles about it. The the challenge that this poses to like the idea of capitalism as creative destruction, right? Because people who are generally very laissez-faire about it is not our problem if you lose your job or your company goes under in terms of like it requires a government response. And like, Matt, thanks for, for talking me through on this earlier before the show. It assumes that there's someone else who will take you, if not in that job, then in another sector. It assumes that like we don't need to be 
actively training people up in green energy because the jobs will just kind of generally migrate there because that's where the future is and that's where you know the like that's that's where the money and job availability will be when everything is shrinking at once that is a case for even if under normal circumstances we believe in creative destruction right now we just need to keep everybody in stasis for a little bit of time that has to be a pro business attitude. The stuff that we're seeing that is more focused on, you know, workers or individuals, whether it's the whether it's paid leave concerns, whether it's, you know, anti-eviction measures, a lot of that is stuff that progressives or leftists or what have you, not to say that those are interchangeable, but like one constituency or another among those groups has been saying needs to happen, period, absent any crisis considerations. And so there's a little bit of never waste a crisis going on here, but it also is a little bit harder to argue for it as an emergency specific measure that should end when the crisis ends. Well, that was what's interesting that happened with the paid leave legislation, where I think a lot of people have had whiplash, right? But so initially, Democrats wanted to take, you know, take advantage of the crisis to push through a paid leave plan like they have always thought we should have in America. Mm -hmm. Because you had governments, including, you know, the Trump administration saying, well, sick people shouldn't go to work. So it was the perfect time to secure agreement that like, yes, sick people shouldn't go to work. There should be a paid leave plan. Um, So Democrats, you know, wanted to write a national paid leave uh, policy structured as a mandate on large employers, uh, because that's how Democrats think this should be organized. Right. And then the Trump administration pushed back on that and said, no, no, no. Like they didn't want to put a burdensome new mandate on employers that they wanted to basically like give employers a huge cash payment in order to do paid leave. So then Democrats said, no, like that's not like that's not what we're about. Like we want to create a paid leave entitlement, not create a pile of money for business owners. Right. And then, you know, it's a compressed time frame, right? So like Democrats official proposal, the Family Act, uh, which you can hear about on the weeds if you listen to our Vicky Shabo episode, uh, that's financed through taxes, right? Uh, but, you know, it's you're not going to rush through a permanent payroll tax increase like overnight in a bipartisan negotiation in response to coronavirus. Uh, so they wound up doing I don't want to say they wound up doing nothing, but they wound up doing a lot less than they said. Right. They created this Trump style um, pay the businesses to give leave program, but only for smaller businesses. So it's really less of a paid sick leave program than a kind of financial assistance to small business program, which is good. I mean, those are both good things to do, but it means we haven't addressed the leave issue. And then it became clear Tuesday morning that uh, the administration, with Pelosi's uh, cooperation, had apparently snuck in at the last minute a lot of language that creates loopholes, creates opportunities for businesses that say they're going to be very burdened to get out of this. So again, it It's not that it's nothing or necessarily a bad thing, but what they really passed is not a paid leave program as we understand it, but a if you want to give paid leave and you are a small business, the government will give you financial assistance to facilitate you doing that, which is a good idea, I think, but is not a crisis response idea. It's not, you know, out of the oh, there there have been some takes in the kind of center left to left commentariat about how the coronavirus is showing all of the the holes that have been built into American society and the safety net over the last several decades. And like, What we're seeing from Congress right now is very much not that response. It's the idea that what we're seeing that that this is a temporary problem that needs to be patched and not an excuse to blow everything up and start over. Right. And it's interesting because I think you see that exact response from a lot of conservatives who are being like, we should have universal health care, but for like this very specific length of time. And even with proposals from Senator Mitt Romney about um, you know giving every family a thousand dollars a month. And then you're hearing from other Republicans saying like that's not going far enough. You know, Tucker Carlson on his show suggested this German concept 
concept of basically, you know, you would keep workers would have limited hours and the government would fill in the hours that they couldn't work so that you could keep up because, you know, the most important thing is to keep people working and not just give them money. This is in a weird way, this opportunity, like it is not an opportunity to blow everything up. It is an opportunity for that kind of specific, if not creative destruction, creative recreation in a very finite amount of time, a, like a dis a disparate event that requires universal health care. And one thing that's, that's you know, come up is like, well, people are saying, well, treatment for coronavirus should be free, right? But the nature of medicine, right, is that you don't know what you're sick with when you come in to see the doctor, right? So, like, if you show up, you get tested, and they're like, no, you don't have coronavirus, but you do have pneumonia, then it's like, what? Like, they send you packing? Like, it doesn't, I don't know. Especially uh, because the entire... One of the big problems with the testing rollout was that the CDC decided to design a test that didn't just pick up coronavirus. If they had limited it to coronavirus, they could have used the WHO's recommendation. And I also think that what's most devastating about this is that the impact is being felt by largely people who are in already they are the people who are at most risk of coronavirus are people who are already ex- have already experienced the very outer limits and worst aspects of our healthcare system, namely people with chronic illnesses. Mm-hmm. Um, and those include, I think a lot of people are thinking of this as being something that is most impactful on the elderly. But keep in mind that people with diabetes, type one and type two diabetes are specifically vulnerable to coronavirus. And type one diabetes doesn't really care how old you are or really anything about you at all. And so, you know, I have numerous friends where they've, you know, this has been they've been self-quarantining for a while, even before some of the more local and statewide and federal announcements about coronavirus because of their specific vulnerability. And then you you talk to people who are in residential care facilities who may have be either recovering from an illness or in those facilities long term. And we're already hearing in several states that are holding primaries or were to be holding primaries today, they were moving voting locations away from those facilities, but they can't move the people away from those facilities. And I think that, you know, for years, the issue of the, you know, largely the privatization of senior care has been a real problem, especially um, from kind of the legality of it and kind of signing over basically care of someone or care of yourself to another entity to you know, how that's handled on an individual community basis has already been really bad. And now it's not going to get better because of this. Okay, let's let's take a second break and then I wanna I wanna refocus. I wanna I wanna do a little weeds on proposals for the economy. Yes. Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, The Future of Work. Questions including, what are we missing when we work remotely? Or how do we handle work-life balance when a major opportunity comes knocking? From the provocative to the technical, we're offering insights you won't want to miss. So tune in to The Future of Work, a Prop G Pod special sponsored by Canva. You can find it on the Prop G Pod wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, so one thing that is out in the ether is this idea of thousand dollar checks, mid bucks. Uh, we it mid bucks. Well, here I want to. <laughs> I want to. I want to. I want to do the whole weeds narrative arc. Ooh, uh, if you okay. if you go back, if you look at my interview with Claudia Sam from long before coronavirus was a thing, this was uh, her proposal. She developed it while she was working as a staff economist at the Federal Reserve. Uh, she left that job uh, largely, I think, so that she could speak in public in a more forceful way about her ideas. So Sam's proposal is to create an automatic trigger so that whenever the unemployment rate starts to rise, this $1,000 checks idea will kind of swing in. She says, like, we don't need to wait for the technical trigger right now because it's obvious that a lot of, you know, restaurants and businesses are shutting down. Uh, So she had that. Jason Furman, who was the kind of top economic advisor in the Obama administration, he has been pushing this very aggressively 
since it became clear that coronavirus was coming to our shores. He's written about it a bunch. He's tweeted about it. He did an interview with uh, Fox.com's Ezra Klein about this. And I know he also spoke to House Democrats uh, to offer his his view. Uh, but it seems to have been picked up as a policy proposal by Mitt Romney and by Tom Cotton, right? Right. Who both said, okay, we need to put money into the hands of people. But they, they haven't produced, like, legislation, but they have done tweets. Um, and Cotton was on Fox News yesterday talking about how the House bill does not go far enough because he's very concerned about small businesses and medium-sized enterprises. And I think that that's reflective of concerns that, you know, what the House is... It's interesting because it's the House made these proposals and a host of conservatives said, like, these go too far, you can't do this. And then a host of now, a bunch of Republicans are saying, actually, we need to go way further. This is a big emergency. So I think um, it was funny someone tweeted uh, earlier today that there's more bipartisan um, agreement on the idea of $1,000 um, cash. I'm good. I want to say... I don't want to say handouts, but that's kind of what I mean. Um, then there is on, like, a giant tax cut, which is unusual. This is where we really might get overtaken by events because we are recording this on Tuesday morning and it's known that Senate Republicans are going to try to figure out what they want their response to be over their Tuesday lunch, which don't get me started on the idea of we're all going to get together in a room to figure this out. But... It is Skype, guys. It, it, the the challenge I think here is that while in theory there might be bipartisan agreement on thousand dollar checks, there's no model legislation. There isn't a bill that Democrats were hammering out for ages in committee, or that like a group, a small group of Democrats and Republicans were hammering out for ages in committee. That like now that the window has been opened, they can just sign like there was with criminal justice reform. Like the, it's. It's not at all clear to me that you get to legislation on $1,000 checks in an expedient enough time frame to satisfy everybody's basic wish to stop being in session and go home and tell their constituents that they did a thing. I mean, also, there's a lot of it's sort of obvious, like, weedsy technical challenges with this. Yes, so, like, exactly. I would imagine conservatives will say, OK, what we should do is we should send everybody $1,000 uh, tax credit and we should send it out immediately. Right. And then progressives will look at that and they'll say, OK, but you're going to leave out of this now everybody who doesn't have at least a thousand dollars in tax liability. But when concern, when Republicans come up with tax credit proposals, that's normally how they do it by design, because they want to help, you know, uh, the deserving, right? They they would want to give money to people who had jobs that have been disrupted by this, not to layabouts uh, who, who weren't working. Some people on the left, I saw Gene Sperling, who's a longtime influential Democratic economic thinker. He was saying, oh, you know, the $1,000 is a good idea, but maybe we could start phasing it out after you get to $100,000 in income, which is it's a little bit of like Democratic Party policy wonk disease. Uh, but, you know, these things happen, right? It's like conservatives don't like the jobless, undeserving poor. Mm. Uh, progressives don't like the idea of giving money to people who don't actually need, need money. extra money. This is not like an unresolvable compromise, but you have to do the work, right? There's questions about, what well, would immigrants be eligible, right? How would you screen out out undocumented people, uh, you know, or in. Right. If, it, right. if it's going to be per household, how do you deal with the mixed status problem? Absolutely. Right. So, you know, there's like just like a million niggling kind of edge cases here. And things like Fox News appearances are they're, they're good, but they're not substitutes for either the work of solving them or like the really big thing. Right. Like what what always makes the difference whenever you say something has appeal on both sides of the aisle is, do you have any give, right? Because something I remember is that in the late Obama years, there was tons of buzz around making the EITC more generous for men who don't have custo- custody over children, right? And so everybody said they were for it, except it turned out that like Paul Ryan was for that in the sense that he was for a very specific set of offsets that paired back other safety net programs. And Democrats were for it in the sense that they had a very specific set of progressive tax increases they wanted to do. And actually, neither of them was that committed to the policy because they both knew that they had picked pay fors that would be unacceptable 
to the other side, right? And like, that's the thing here. It's like Tom Cotton is one of the most um, immigration skeptical senators, right? So a good sign that Tom Cotton is really fired up about the thousand dollar checks is he's willing to say, you know what? This is not really an immigration issue. If what it takes to get Democrats on board is you give it to immigrants too, that's like that's right. when you're doing things. Otherwise, yeah. like if you're just on TV talking, yeah, it becomes kind of like a weird kabuki theater of like we are making the appearance of talking talking about the action we're taking without actually having to do anything. Especially because, I mean, all of this is happening, and I think that that's one of the things. I mean, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned this, Dar. That like the idea of you know, we're going to Mr. Smith goes to Washington this and everybody's going to get in a room and figure this out. You can't get into a room right now. <laughs> uh, you know, like the Supreme Court is closed. Like Congress is supposed like supposed to be largely closed to outside visitors. Like, right. And this is actually I- is increasingly becoming part of the discussion of this bill is like Dick Durbin was absolutely livid that this that they didn't just pass the house bill and go home because inter alia was like a you know a public health problem for them to be in the senate chamber when they could just do a thing go home deliberate the next thing from there yeah and i mean you have numerous uh, members of congress who are in self-quarantine because they may have been exposed at cpac um along with a host of other people because cpac did a absolutely jab poor job of screening people um but you know it's it's this is hanging over even the political discussions about how to deal with coronavirus is coronavirus is the idea that the very machinations of our politics even the idealized form of our politics are impacted by the fact that you're not supposed to be in a room with other people and that you need to be handling this from like you know how do you socially distance the kind of you know, backroom dealing that a lot of our politics necessitates. Now, whether or not it should, well, it just does. That's what that's what Slack is for. You can have private Slack channels. The other thing that's that's happening is that the Trump administration has been pushing uh, first very vaguely, and and this morning with a greater level of specificity, the idea of payroll tax cuts. This has not obtained a ton of outside support as far as I can tell, but it matters a lot that the president of the United States is for it. Um, I would say that the great virtue of the payroll tax cut as an idea is that the administration is really, really simple, right? If you tell the IRS to tell employers to stop withholding payroll tax, they can do that like on a dime. It's like a couple emails, you know, you click a couple buttons and it'll just happen. Which also means the bill is very easy to write and you don't have to deal with a lot of haggling over, you know, you don't have to deal with details as a means of getting compromise. Yes. And especially because Congress literally did this in the winter of 2010, 2011, like you can take that legislative text and tweak the numbers or the dates if you want. But it's like we know how to do the payroll tax cut. The downside is that by the time they did that payroll tax cut in in 2011, we had been in the economic downturn for years and we had actually started recovering. Right. Unemployment was high, but the economy was growing. And so this was a way of putting a little bit of extra money into the pockets of most adults. Um Right now, we're looking at an economy that's going down. Like, fewer people are employed today than were a week ago. I expect many fewer will be employed one week, two weeks from now. Um, and lots of other people who, you know, who maybe like they used to be servers at a restaurant and now they're like running delivery errands to people are going to be seeing shorter hours, lower tips, things like that. And will probably be moving into an informal gig economy. Right. And the payroll tax is not going to help people who are in that sort of situation of most suffering, which, you know, is bad from a humanitarian standpoint, but also from a macroeconomic standpoint, you know, I, like everybody, I would like to have more money rather than less. Uh, But my personal household budget constraint is like not that affected by coronavirus. Like people who suddenly lose their incomes aren't going to be able to buy things. And that's going to continue right. even even if these restrictions start to lift, right? If, right. if two months from now, everybody's like, okay, we can go back to the restaurants. The restaurant business is not a very like, oh, we can just handle two months well paying our, you know, 
I, I think New York State has already taken some measures to help small businesses because you've got taxes due the end of this week in New York State. If you are the a state restaurant, budgets are going to collapse. Yeah, if they that like this at scale. Yeah, the the degree to which the restaurant industry. Um, there was a piece about this. Um, we can put it in show notes, but. The restaurant industry specifically is not ready for this. The lived volatility of coronavirus puts restaurateurs at even greater risk. And especially, you know, when you have people like David Chang, who's very well known uh, with his Momofuku restaurants and a host of cities, him saying essentially like, I don't know, like this is unforeseen territory. I don't know what we're going to do. And this is someone who's like a very well-known Netflix documentary having chef with many restaurants, when you're having people at that level in this industry saying, like, we're not sure what to do, what do you think is going to happen to, like, the tiny taco place that opened two months ago? If you look at it from the perspective of a payroll tax cut will help the following type of individual, an individual who is formally employed and will remain formally employed for the duration, but whose cash in pocket is going to diminish. So a tipped employee or a commission employee who is working for a business that is definitely going to keep its doors open and keep paying people. Like if you look at it from the problem first perspective, in addition to specific industries like the restaurant industry facing crisis, you know, facing a crisis that they're not prepared for, we're seeing a phenomenon of because various industries are going, we don't know what the future holds. They're doing things that are, you know, temporary layoffs or indefinite closures or that kind of thing. Situations where it is not clear that the person who is losing their employment, A, could get work if they started looking for it now, but B, will need to be looking for work once the economy speeds up again. It's entirely plausible that a lot of these people will end up going back to work for the incumbent businesses that are currently closed. What does the policy solution to that look like? You know, maybe it's $1,000 a month because you assume that they're not going to, because that's what keeps them in a holding pattern until everything can start back up again. Maybe it's something else. But it seems that we've, over the last, like, decade plus, starting with the financial crisis of 2008 and continuing to the present, that Congress has been in one of two modes for the most part. It's either been in, we don't, no particular idea appeals enough to us to be willing to risk political capital on, or it's been in, oh, crap, oh, crap, oh, crap, it's a crisis, we need to do something. And whatever is closest to hand is the thing we are going to do. That is obviously not a good situation for legislative politics, but it does do a little bit to explain why this manifestly payroll tax cut idea may very well be the thing we get coming out of this because it's the closest thing to hand to grab, pass, go home. But also, you know, I mean, the, a huge problem with that mode of policymaking is it's not just that it it tends to have not that much thoughtfulness, right? But it really advantages um, business sectors that have robust lobbying infrastructure, right? Yes. Not necessarily even because, like, oh, they're all going to be on the take from the cruise ship industry, but because what you can do with a robust lobbying infrastructure is you can put together a really professionally well-done thing, right? It's why you hire all these ex-Hill staffers and these ex-congressmen. is not just to curry favor, but it's because they actually know how it works. And so you can talk to, like, I know friends who run restaurants, and they are losing their shit, right? Um, but the fact is, is, like, they want help from the government, whereas the uh, casino industry, which lobbies all the time because it's so heavily regulated, like they could get you a bill on your desk tomorrow that does exactly what owners of casinos want. And it'll be a I don't want to say it'll be a good idea, but it'll be a good bill. Right. Like it will work. It will have all its eyes dotted, its T's crossed. And they will also be aware of like which are the right committees to take this to and, and all this kind of stuff. And so that's one reason why, you know, uh, some of these sector specific things seem to be headed for the front of the line in a way that rubs all kinds of people the wrong way. But like they are plugged in, they are wired in. And a lot of us felt 
you know, in the wake of the financial crisis, that it was good that in September and October of 2008, that the government acted to make sure that the banking system didn't go away. But what happened is that after they did that, the sense of urgency started to wane away. And it's not that nothing got done. I mean, the Obama administration passed a big stimulus, but that stimulus was a super contentious, very partisan, you know, food fight in which it was clear that the moment there was a real almost great if the rest of the story hadn't gone so bad we would look back at tarp and say this was amazing right like the parties like they listened to the experts they put their differences aside they did the right thing the reason it's come to be so sour is that having done that they then didn't do the right thing to help millions of people who were unemployed for a series of years right and you could imagine that right that the coronavirus, the public health crisis lasts, I don't know how long, some period of months, um, that there's rescue so that we don't see liquidation of the airline industry, of the hotel industry, so that major retail chains, at least some of them, kind of survive. But we come out of this on the other side, back where we were 10 years ago, where 7 8% of the population is unemployed instead of 3 where wage growth is non-existent because there are so many jobless people. And everyone's like, oh, you know, well, we should do something. But they're not actually doing anything because there's no lobby for unemployed people. It's funny because Dara mentioned that this has put so much of the infrastructure we've had over the last 10 years uh, since the last great financial crisis under incredible stress. But I think it's put the infrastructures that we've had since in some ways since the Second World War under incredible stress, like even the concepts of you know, basic federalism of, you know, what is rendered unto the states and what is rendered unto the federal government, which we, you know, we've had this conversation before. It seems like as if we were pretty clear on it. And now it's like we're less clear because when you have contradicting authorities coming from, you know, states like Washington state that is, you know, dealing with coronavirus on a very lived level, especially in Seattle, and you have states, you know, like Oklahoma, where they declared a state of emergency a day after the governor was like, go out. I think that this is a big crisis and it remains unclear as to at any level, whether even if we know how to do what we need to do, we don't know yet what we need to do. So here is the most important thing to remember. No matter how much this epidemic and social distancing may be cutting down on your commute time on a daily basis, you have to keep listening to podcasts. You do. It's important to get out of the house, take a walk around the neighborhood, listen to your favorite podcasts. Mm -hmm. We are the only thing keeping us going as a society. <laughs> we are the only voices that you're hearing <laughs> from people who don't live in your house. And an engine of economic uh, beneficence that, that don't don't let the podcasting industry go down with the rest. And we will reward you by reminding you to do things like stand up every once in a while and uh, put on real clothes. It's all there. Uh, seriously, uh, check out uh, the Weeds Facebook group. Always a great place to discuss things, to connect with people virtually when you can't uh, physically. Uh, we're also... Uh, trying to collect questions in there about coronavirus, but also about other things that are on your mind as you have some extra time at home. Uh, we may need to record some some special episodes, uh, you know, here and there. And we just we want to know what's on your mind. This is like a stressful, weird time. Nobody has experience with this, uh, but we're all doing our best to uh, get through it together. Uh, so thanks to uh, Jeffrey Geld and to all of you. And the weeds will be back on Friday. More to-dos, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You can just use HubSpot because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, high-quality leads, fast-closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark-breaking quarters. It's not a miracle, it's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today.